This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 28th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, new bivalent vaccines have now become available in the United States. There's not much data available on these vaccines, but we did recently publish a study of a similar bivalent vaccine. In fact, it's a vaccine that's being used in other parts of the world. So what is it and how is it different from the vaccines that are now being administered in the United States? Steve, before I start speaking about this, I should say that Lindsay is an author on this study, although I believe he has no financial relationship with the manufacturer. This is an mRNA vaccine that mixes two antigenic sequences, one derived from the original spike protein that's been used in older vaccines, and a second derived from the Omicron BA1 spike protein sequence. These are mixed together and administered in the same formulation as mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine. The idea is to try to preserve the protection of the original vaccine and hopefully supplement it with broadened coverage of Omicron sequences. This is different, though, from the vaccine that's being used in the U.S., which includes sequences from the more recent BA4-5 strains. So, Eric, you're correct. I have no financial relationships with the manufacturer. And I do want to highlight in the vaccines that as we look at the formulation, the boosting is 50 micrograms of mRNA. It has been traditionally of the ancestral strain. What these new Omicron vaccines are looking at are half ancestral and half with the Omicron sequence, in this case, BA1, so 25 micrograms of each, to allow us to determine if boosting with different sequences makes a difference. So how did the study work? The researchers recruited participants who'd previously received a total of three doses of the older Moderna vaccine, and they were given either a fourth dose of the original vaccine or the new bivalent vaccine. They then measured antibody titers against both the original virus and Omicron and other variants. The study wasn't designed to look at efficacy. Nevertheless, they did keep track of the number of infections. They included more than 400 participants who received the bivalent booster and somewhat fewer who received the original booster. To summarize a lot of data, the two boosters induced similar levels of neutralizing antibody against the original viral strain. The bivalent vaccine induced somewhat higher levels of antibody against Omicron variants, though this was most striking in people who had a history of prior SARS-CoV-2 infection. The total number of infections that occurred during the study was small, but it was similar in both groups during a period when the circulating virus was almost exclusively BA4 and BA5 variants. It's difficult to know what to make of these numbers. There's no easy way to translate the differences we see in titers to actual protection against either infection or severe illness. And of course, this isn't the vaccine we'll be using in the US. We're going to have to wait to see real clinical outcomes before we know the value of these bivalent vaccines. So, Steve and Eric, I think we learned several things from this report. First, the speed of the platform. This technology allows rapid target identification, vaccine creation, manufacturing for clinical study, and even manufacturing to scale for clinical use over a very short period of time. That allows a flexibility that we've not seen previously in vaccine development. What we also see is an increasing understanding of platform safety. As new sequence-based vaccines emerge, the safety profile appears to be similar to prior experience. Of course, this is limited by small numbers, 
but the tolerability, reactogenicity, and general adverse events seem similar. Of course, larger numbers are always more informative, but it's reassuring that the safety profile in hundreds looks similar to that in millions. We also see immunogenicity. The way in which this technology elicits immune response appears to be consistent across advances in the insert. What we don't know, and Eric, you highlighted this, is clinical benefit. And that we cannot know without clinical data, which takes more time in terms of individuals vaccinated with the new sequence versus those unvaccinated and what infection rate they have and the severity of their infection. I think there is one other important point, Lindsay, which is that at least as measured by antibodies, these new vaccines seem to be just as good as the original boosters, at least in providing protection against the original strain. It's not as if we're taking a hit because we have a little bit less of the original antigen sequence in here. The immune responses that are mounted seem to be pretty good. Just to highlight that point, Eric, and that was one of the important questions to be looked at in these variant booster vaccines or bivalent vaccines. Does the immune response against the ancestral strain differ if you receive 25 versus 50 microgram dose of antigen? And there, as you noted earlier, the immune responses look similar, while the immune responses against the variant, in this case, BA1, one sees a higher immune response in those who receive the BA1 antigen versus purely the ancestral. So at least on the immune side of the house, we don't see a diminution of the immune response to important strains. Eric and Lindsay, we've been posting these podcasts for about two and a half years at this point. When we've hit some past milestones, we've stopped to review where we started from and where we are at that moment. Today, though, I'd like to do something different and ask about the choice to communicate this sort of information in a podcast. What went into the decision to start? How does it work? And is this an effective way of communicating the kinds of information that we want to get across? Perhaps we should start with how we started. Let's recount what happened. Um, well, the four of us were there, Steve, uh, you, me, and Lindsay, Tim. Um, it was back in the time that we were still in the office. And I don't think we started with any particular plan. There is a studio on the floor. And we decided to go over to the studio. Tim set us up and we just started talking. At the time, I don't think we had any idea that we were going to have a weekly feature, nor that it would go on for so long. You're remembering back to early 2020. And Eric, we were working in the hospital, taking care of patients, and we observed SARS-CoV-2 with substantial transmission and morbidity in Italy. It had arrived in New York. It was coming up the coast to Boston. Communities like ours were preparing for it, including canceling schools, among other things. And I remember us talking to try and understand what was going on, given the speed of information, and how do we understand the significance of this event and prepare for what we all thought was coming. And we were trying to respond to the utter lack of information that could guide clinicians, patients, communities in their thinking about how to respond to what was an incredibly rapid changing process for which we had little understanding. And so, as you said, Eric, we started talking. As you also pointed out, Eric, this is a weekly feature. Why is it weekly? That's a great question. And I 
don't have a great answer for it. It's really been by default. But it's certainly true that the pace of discovery in COVID has been incredibly rapid. And we felt that there was enough information every week to keep up with that it was worth going on every week. Of course, two things have happened. First, research could never keep up that breakneck pace that occurred in the first year of the epidemic. And during this time, almost every practitioner has become familiar with COVID-19 because of the incredible volume of patients. So we no longer feel that it's necessary to do this to acquaint people with the kinds of things that occur during the illness. I don't know that things have become less interesting, though. We still have breakthroughs, including the effect of antiviral drugs and the clinical trials of those that we published this year showing their efficacy. We have the new bivalent vaccines that we just talked about today, and we still have a lot to learn about those. It's likely that things will continue to change, though not quite as fast as they did near the beginning of the outbreak. Steve, as Eric alluded to, we were processing and trying to help our community process and manage a tremendous amount of information that was emerging from around the globe. The challenge early on, a lot of the information was anecdote or case series. Eventually, systematic data emerged, but often was incomplete or in process. And we wanted to help our community, particularly those taking care of patients, try to understand and synthesize the very data emerging of differential quality. And much of the data were in process. What I mean by that is we now learn of observations the day that they occur around the world. What is challenging from a scientific standpoint and from a patient care standpoint is how do we take those observations and translate them into meaningful action that is thoughtful and evidence-based, particularly when the evidence base is still being created. So even as we discussed today about the bivalent vaccine, there are many features of that vaccine that make a lot of sense and are reassuring, and there are certain features that require certain study, such as clinical efficacy. It's important for us as a community to understand the strengths and weaknesses of emerging data and technologies to know how to reduce that to practice. Steve, let me turn this around to ask you a question. You've been in medical publishing a long time. How do you see the role of podcasts for a medical journal? Do you think they add anything or do you think that they're just a distraction for us? I think that pretty much any sort of multimedia furthers our mission. Podcasts can expand our audience and allow people to access the information we're delivering in the way and at the time they choose. The most obvious example is the commute to work. You can't or you shouldn't be reading text behind the wheel, but you can certainly listen to a podcast. So to be a bit self-promotional, podcasts, like other multimedia, are a new way to deliver the same high-quality medical information that we've been delivering for more than 200 years. I think I'd add that these have been fun to do. And for me, at least, and I think for uh, Lindsay and Steve and Tim, they have really forced us to keep up more broadly on what's going on and to carefully reread what we're publishing to kind of synthesize it for the benefit of the listeners. I think that medical publishing, medical communication, communication in general has so dramatically changed over the last 20 years, 10 years, two years. And I think for us to enable our readers and now our listeners to stay as current as possible so that they can deliver the best care to their patients, I think we must engage the newer technologies. And as you say, Steve, 
to enable our listeners to acquire information in the time, place, and format that is most convenient and effective for them. Um, and Tim, speaking in our ear, has uh, just also added the point that there are a lot of sources of information out there right now of varying degrees of reliability. And I think that the ability for us to use the information that we're publishing and get it out there in a medium that people can digest gives listeners a source of reliable information. Along with this podcast, we're also trying some other new multimedia. We've produced videos for several years, including the longer videos in clinical medicine that are focused on introducing or refreshing specific skills for physicians, and shorter quick-take videos that briefly summarize the findings of major trials. Today, we're launching something new. What is that? Today is the first of our double-take videos. These are very different from the quick-takes. Instead of focusing on a specific trial, these will cover broader areas and somewhat more depth. We have several in production, and they vary markedly in subject, tone, and approach. Some will be based on reviews we've published, and others on perspective articles. Many, like the one we've posted today, cover specific illness. Today's double take focuses on the experience in sickle cell disease and about the choices that patients and their caregivers now have that are available, including drug therapy, bone marrow transplant, and the newest gene therapies. We'll have a number of similar videos coming out over the next few months. It's important to note that this is all an experiment. Uh, we're trying out things like the podcasts that we just started spontaneously, like the double takes that have been more intentional. But we don't know how these are going to work. And we're not going to know how these work until we have some sort of feedback. So we'd love to hear from you about how useful these are for you. Do they help your practice? Do they help you with patients? Do they help your patients directly? Lindsay, as one of the people who devotes many hours to making sure that what we publish is consistent, readable, and really represents the facts of a study, how do you feel about using these new communication modalities? So, Steve, I think that as we've been discussing, there is a balance between completeness and accessibility. And I think we can and are doing both. Where our primary manuscripts that we have been publishing for over 200 years, as you pointed out, remain high quality, definitive reports of the investigation at hand. I think that growing the portfolio of material that increases accessibility to our clinician readership and to a broader group of health conscious individuals, I think is very important. We must take advantage of emerging technologies to communicate with our community to improve health. And Eric, as you mentioned, there are several new features, but we can highlight when we started videos, that was an experiment. We did audios, that was an experiment over the last 20 years. With visual abstracts, there are a variety of features that we have added that increase accessibility to our content in a rapid fashion to allow more of our readers, trainees, and allied health professionals and patients to access high-quality information that they can orient their thinking around, given whatever new technology or treatment or disease understanding has emerged. So I think it's a terrific evolution in the context of an improving platform of communication, but it will continue to be an incredible challenge to maintain Veritas while we alter how we present the data to our community, often in an extremely succinct fashion. And that will be a balance that we will struggle with 
for completeness versus accessibility, leveraging how we as a community acquire information given improvements in communication. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.